Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Hayley and I'm the uh, Acting Head of Learning, of, uh, Learning and Events here at the Museum. I'm very pleased to be able to welcome you to the first of our last three lunchtime lectures that will take place here in this building as we know it. Um, but I'm also thrilled to be able to welcome back a former colleague, uh, Kristen Hussey, uh, who worked with us as a curator for some years, and it's lovely that she's been able to come back today. And she has now left the hard work and heavy lifting of the curatorial world uh, to do her PhD, which I've just realised I've left written down over there, um, which is on Im <laughs> Imperial Medicine in the Global City. Excellent. Imperial Medicine in the Global City at Queen Mary University of London. And without more ado, I shall leave it to the expert. Thanks for that, Hayley. Really good memory on the PhD title there. Um, well, hello, everyone, and thank you for coming out today. I'm so lovely to see so many people interested in ophthalmology at a lunchtime on a Tuesday. Um, but it's always wonderful to be back at the RCS and, of course, speaking on a subject that was inspired by my work here in the museum and, of course, by the Hunterians' fantastic collections. Um, so my talk today is called Empire of the Eye, Indian Oculists, British Surgeons, and the Trans-Imperial Development of Victorian Cataract Surgery. And what all that means will hopefully become clear as we go along. Now, have you ever actually looked for an eye in the Hunterian Museum? But let me tell you, there's actually not that much to find. Um, a few bits and pieces of reptiles and fish, and some might say incidental eyes, things like Hunterian preparations of the eyes of a fetus, which were prepared more because Hunter was interested in the process of human gestation than the eye itself necessarily. But for a museum whose subject is the history of surgery, there's a surprising lack of all things ophthalmic, or that is to say, there is now. This wasn't always the case. Uh, if we were to travel back in time to 1920, you'd actually find quite a big selection of human eyes dating to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and about half of them would have been imported from India. In 1917, Robert Henry Elliott, a retired surgeon in the Indian Medical Service, delivered the Hunterian Lecture here at the college. The subject was the Indian operation of couching for cataract, an indigenous medical practice which continued to plague the work of civil surgeons in, in India, like Eliot, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Alongside his lecture, Eliot presented to the college a collection of over 50 preserved eyes from his time in the government ophthalmic hospital in Madras, which showed the often devastating after effects of the couching procedure, hopefully for the benefit of the college's students. But unfortunately, as with much of the college's fantastic early 20th century collections, the eyes were destroyed in the 1941 bombing. But what I think the story of the Hunterian's now lost eye collection illustrates so well is if you want to learn about 19th century ophthalmology, India is going to be a big part of the story. Out of the storerooms of museums and archives, the Indian subcontinent seems to emit an irresistible pull to the researcher, or it, at least it did for me. Um, the tools of the sutia, the Hindi word for cataract culture, can be found here in the Hunterian's instrument collections. There's an image there. Um, this was donated by IMS surgeon H.E. Brockman in 1902. And actually, a similar set donated by the same person um, is at the Science Museum, part of the former Welcome Museum. Um, the catalog of the old Moorfields Hospital Museum revealed it contained um, at least two preserved eyes, which had been couched by Indian oculists working in London. And in fact, Victorian newspapers are full of advertisements for Indian eye doctors claiming to provide miraculous cures with their mystic Indian medicine. 
um, on, on a different level, international medical conferences brought together surgeons working all over the world um, together to discuss the topics of the day. And British surgeons working in India, or um, Anglo-Indian surgeons as they referred to themselves, held a particular prestige for their knowledge of the eye. Uh, here in a later period, I just had to include this picture, Neil, because it's so fantastic. And um, we see, I think it's Queen Mary at Wimbledon um, in the 1920s. She's wearing glare protectors. That would have been the word they used for early sunglasses, which were made by a British Indian company called Lawrence and Mayo. But I won't really be talking about spectacles today. <laughs> Um, but I will be talking about eye surgery. So I never really set out to study ophthalmic surgery. Um, my work explores the ways in which um, British medical practice in the late Victorian era was influenced by connections with Britain's empire. And over and over again, my work was just pulling me constantly back to this issue, which seemed to enthrall the lay and the medical press, that of the cataract couching operation. And today I want to suggest that by looking at discussions around the contested nature of cataract operation, it's possible to draw a very dynamic, a very international picture about eye surgery in the late Victorian era. Now first I would just say I am a historian, not a medic, so my knowledge of cataract surgery extends about as far as the year 1920. Um, my interest is in the ways in which knowledge travels, and specifically how we can understand um, the body, whether as a patient, as a practitioner, or even as a preserved specimen, playing a role in the movement of medical knowledge, particularly in an age of empire. So apologies in advance to any um, surgeons or ophthalmologists in the audience for what will clearly be my lack of specific anatomical knowledge. Um, but for those of you who might not know that much about ophthalmic surgery, like myself, uh, I thought I might start out by explaining a little more of uh, the basics, as it were. Um, what is a cataract? That would be pretty crucial for today. Um, so a cataract is the lens of the eye when it becomes opaque and obscures the vision. Um, the lens of your eye naturally becomes cloudy with age as the proteins which compose the lens denature. Today, most people in the UK over 65 will cope with cataract or clouding of the lens to some extent. Um, a variety of factors predisposed to getting cataract, including diabetes, malnutrition, alcohol consumption, and exposure to intense sunlight. But cataracts are, of course, not limited only by age. Younger people can suffer from cataract, whether as the result of an injury, an infectious disease, or a hereditary condition. Cataract and cataract blindness is really a timeless problem. As long as there have been people, there have been cataracts. Um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, cataracts have historically been a very treatable condition. The operation of cataract couching is actually one of the oldest surgical operations that we know of. Um, they found instruments for cataract surgery um, in the tombs of Egypt dating to about 2700 BC. Um, the Alexandrian physician and writer Celsus recorded a, a procedure akin to couching in about the first century, and then it's described in a little bit more detail in the sixth century by the Indian philosopher uh, Sushustra. It's probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Apologies. Um, but, and that's a bit of a subject of scholarly debate. Where does this operation um, begin? But whether it came from Egypt to India or the other way around, um, we can safely say that the procedure of couching has been performed in the Indian subcontinent and many other parts of the world for at least the past 2,000 years. And now, the operation in itself is actually quite beautiful in its simplicity. And the cornea of the eye is cut to allow for the insertion of a sharp needle or probe, and more correctly termed a cataract needle. And the clouded lens, that is the cataract, is then forcefully displaced from its ligaments and pushed down into the eye, and which is sort of what this illustration is trying to show. This is from a, a textbook in about the year uh, 1840. 
um, the patient can then see immediately the cataract is removed and the procedure is minimally invasive and has almost no recovery time. Um, and so it went in the world of eye surgery for thousands of years. Uh, couching arrived in England at some point in the Middle Ages and was practiced across Europe by itinerant oculists, um, as these untrained eye surgeons called themselves. Um, it was not actually until the mid-1700s that any other surgical innovation was presented uh, to challenge the primacy of couching um, or depression as the procedure had come to be known uh, in medical circles. In 1747, French ophthalmologist Jacques Daviel performed the first ever cataract extraction, um, and that's quite a key difference. Um, so in this procedure, the diseased lens is actually removed completely from the eye, um, rather than left floating around sort of in the orbit, which, as you can imagine, causes some considerable problems. And often when we learn about the history of ophthalmology, or I would say arguably the history of 19th century surgery generally, it goes a little bit like this. Um, in the early to mid-19th century, we see these sorts of innovations. We see professionalization um, of the entire branch. Hospitals are established and medical knowledge is advanced. Doctors are separated from the quacks. Uh, and in the case of eye surgery, couching is relegated to the history books in favor of the far superior extraction method. Um, but I found things uh, aren't quite that simple. Um, cataract couching did continue to be used, even by many of the Victorian era's most famous surgeons, um, and indeed well into the 20th century. Um, actually, the question of what, of what is the best technique for treating cataract um, was a heated and often contested one um, up until, and even through the First World War. So this is from um, Robert Elliott's Hunterian lecture I mentioned previously. Um, we come now to a very interesting phase in the study of the operation of couching. Um, we've shown reason to believe that, like many other valued heritage of the West, it was brought here originally by the wise men of the East. For more than 18 centuries, it remained a treasured possession of surgery only to yield to the fierce competition of a method better able to survive the stern test of experience. He's talking about extraction in that case. From the East, it had sprung to find a home in the West, and in the East, in the hands of Western surgeons, its last and by no means interesting chapter is in the process of being written. So what I'd like to do today is, in a sense, destabilize the sort of simplistic picture of ophthalmology we have in the late 19th century. I'm much more interested in looking at its complexities, its disagreements, and even its scandals. And in particular, I believe that we need to look to India and the influence of Indian medical knowledge if we are to understand this contested field of eye surgery in this period. In the great debate over how to treat a cataract, we have to look further afield to the empire of the eye, and we, can, and we consider how these conversations traveled from east to west and then back again. So studying ophthalmology in the 19th century, I have to say, is incredibly fascinating. I'm really passionate about it, um, and it's probably because the Victorians themselves were just fascinated by the eye. Um, physician William Wally called the organ the queen of the senses, the index of the mind, the window to the soul, um, which is a, a very poetical refrain um, that you hear a lot if you read 19th century textbooks on the eye. Um, inspired by innovations in optics and anatomical discoveries of the 18th century, vision and perception were really a Victorian fascination. Um, in a cultural sense, technological advancements like photography completely revolutionized the way in which people saw the world. And in a complementary way, the advent of ophthalmology as its own branch of medicine profoundly changed the way people understood and cared for their eyes. Um, in previous centuries, as I mentioned, the treatment of eye diseases had been left largely to mountebanks like, most famously, the Chevalier John Taylor, pictured here, who was employing a modified version of the ancient method of couching for cataract. 
In fact, the treatment of the eye was so well associated with these Romeo oculus that until the early 19th century, medical men simply had little opportunity or interest of working with eye disease. People just didn't go to the doctor for it, basically. Um, and this association of eye surgery with quackery continued into the 19th century, um, and as George Coates is here suggesting, kept many people um, from seriously considering the eye um, as their special subject of study. Um, the invention of the ophthalmoscope in 1851 by German physician and physicist Herbert von Helmholtz um, provided practitioners with the first time the ability to view and diagnose disease that was inside of the head, as it were, those previously unseen recesses of the eye. Um, and in 1857, the English eye surgeon Jabez Hogg heralded a new era in ophthalmic surgery, which accompanied uh, the adoption of the ophthalmoscope um, in general practice. This is a quote from his um, book on the subject. He was an advocate of everyone using the ophthalmoscope, um, which he believes is going to rescue this branch of surgery from the hands of empirics and ignorant pretenders. Oh, I just love that language. Um, so while a similar process could be seen across many of the specialties in the Victorian era, unlike other strands of medicine, ophthalmology has always had a strong connection um, with what would have then been termed the East. In 1799, the British government dispatched troops to Egypt in response to Napoleon's invasion, believing that it was um, a conflict with their Indian interests. And while they were there, many of the soldiers contracted what was called the Egyptian ophthalmia. On their return in 1803, this highly infectious eye disease, and which is more properly called trachoma, spread from the barracks to the general population, causing widespread disfigurement and blindness. Um, the greater availability of this clinical material, that is, patients, um, spurred physicians out of their idleness and led to the rapid development of specialist hospitals as suddenly the treatment of the eye became highly in demand and highly interesting, arguably. Um, the first London Eye Infirmary was founded in 1804 specifically to tackle this ophthalmia epidemic. Um, and at the same time as the infirmary, so this, this predecessor to Moorfields is being established, um, a, a sister institution, as it were, is made in Madras in 1819 under the auspices of the East India Company. Um, but whether we're looking at London or looking at India, cataract remained one of the central concerns for Victorian eye surgeons. Um, Indian Medical Service surgeon G.H. Uh, Fink, writing here in 1894, says nature has provided us with the wonderful organs of vision known as the eyes, which serve various purposes in our lives, and without them, any individual is seriously handicapped in the battle and the struggle for existence. Now, Fink here is talking about his patients in the Northwest province, but he could have said exactly the same thing about Victorian Londoners. Um, cataract was the leading cause of blindness in the UK as in India, a threat to the livelihood and well-being of the poor as well as the rich. Um, Queen Victoria was known to suffer from cataracts. Um, she's here represented with her goggles, um, which were meant to improve her vision without the need for uh, surgical intervention, as she was uh, afraid to go under the knife. It would have been interesting to see what, uh, what procedure they would have used on her, but she had her goggles instead. Um, and while cataract didn't discriminate by class or race, access to surgical intervention for the condition was limited by income. Um, as with all Victorian medicine, the middle and upper classes were able to pay for private consultations with leading surgeons, um, while the working classes relied on charitable hospitals and friendly societies to support their health care. Um, blindness, whether from cataracts or from infectious diseases like smallpox, um, was a very immediate danger to the prospects, and um, particularly of working class people, who relied on their sites to carry out the basic trades of the city. 
Without vision, people um, would often be reduced to begging or relying on outwardly from the local parish. Um, and in Henry Mayhew's work here on the London poor, he often depicts um, blind beggars as the lowest of the low. This is his blind bootlace seller. Um, maintaining sight was therefore of really great importance for the working classes, and they were seemingly willing to try almost anything to avoid the fate of blindness. Um, but today I'm interested in what the British Empire, and in particular India, um, contribute to this medical marketplace, as historians have called it, um, particularly in options for providing cataract care. Um, so today I'll be drawing on two specific moments, um, which I think illustrate well this, this trans-imperial interaction, as I've called it. Um, the first is the 1893 trial of the Indian oculists at the Old Bailey. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Smith Indian operation uh, in the early years of the 20th century. Now, Indian oculists were undoubtedly a Victorian medical fashion. A uh, search of Victorian newspapers reveals uh, a number of Indian oculists or eye doctors who operated throughout the country in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In 1888, Haji Abdullah was working as an Indian eye doctor in Bolton. Uh, in the years 1906-7, Hakim Suterdin um, was billed as an Indian eye specialist and appeared in advertisements across uh, several northern towns, including Lincoln and Leeds. And it's hardly surprising that we see here in 1907, um, the Northampton Mercury is talking about the practice of the Chula brothers, um, and they proclaim that Indian eye doctors have a considerable vogue in India and in this country. I think it's interesting to note this is 1907, um, which is several years after the 1893 trial we're going to be talking about. Um, but of all of the numerable Indian oculists who plied their trade in Britain in the Victorian era, none were more famous or more infamous than the so-called gang who was brought before the Central Criminal Court in the autumn of 1893, charged with fraudulently obtaining sums of money from their clients in the West London suburbs. The basic facts of the case are these. In October of 1893, four individuals from the Punjab region of India were apprehended in West London, where for several months previously they had been plying their trade as oculists. The men were accused first with conspiracy to defraud, and secondly, for obtaining sums of money on a fraudulent basis. Interestingly, they're not actually charged for injuring patients, because they never called themselves doctors, so there was no law to keep that from happening. Um, drawing on the testimony of expert witnesses from London's ophthalmic hospitals, the key arguments of the case revolved around the usefulness of the oculus methods and medicines in treating eye disease, the dirtiness of their tools, their failure to use an ophthalmoscope, and their infliction of pain on their patients were presented as evidence of the oculus's cruelty and incompetence. And yet, as the common sergeant observed at the conclusion of the trial, Although their knowledge was somewhat archaic and their method barbaric, if all of this had taken place 100 years ago, it's possible it would have turned out they possessed quite as much medical knowledge with regard to the eye as any medical man in this country. So here we already start to see kind of an interesting conundrum. Are the oculists fakes or frauds? Or are they in fact experts? How effective actually is Indian medicine? And how did it stand up in comparison with the city's specialist hospitals? So the charges against the oculists were originally brought by one man, a retired gas fitter named James Russell. Um, after a series of painful operations and medical treatments, he decided he hadn't improved and decided to bring the oculists to justice. Um, a total of eight witnesses were called for the prosecution, as well as five for the defense, who debated the relative merits of the oculist's skill. 
Now, Russell had been told by surgeons at Charing Cross Hospital that he was going blind as the result of ocular atrophy and that nothing could be done for him. Shortly afterwards, he was handed an advertisement by a man dressed in Indian garb for these Indian oculists who assured him that he could be cured. Um, So Russell describes his treatment here, which involves eating castor sugar and butter. Um, And then after a few weeks, he's told it's time for the operation. And this is from uh, a newspaper. He says here, uh, he said that the hooks were inserted and the eye of the skin was drawn up uh, The skin of the eye was drawn up and cut off. It was a very painful operation. It felt as if his eye was being dragged out of his head. He felt the blood running down his cheek. He had been in pain ever since. He had derived no benefit from the treatment. Um, I'm just going to bring back uh, this image of the tools again because I think it's uh, illustrative. Um, Here, the father of four-year-old William Turner described in detail the operation as it was carried out on his son. Um, They thrust a needle through the skin of his eye and threaded a piece of cotton, let it remain there for several minutes while he smoked his pipe. He then sharpened an ordinary penknife on the mantelpiece, um, raised the skin, and sawed off a piece of the eyeball. Um, So yeah, so his father describes the tools that are being used as blunt and rusty, and I think when we look at the set of tools that are here part of the Hunterian's collection, it appears to corroborate at least the descriptions given in the trial um, of what appears to be far from what we would think of as surgical-grade tools. Uh, Indeed, London-based surgeons described the tools as unfit for surgery on the eye and seemingly ignorant in advances in antiseptics. Um, So while the Oculus methods caused pain and suffering to many, they also brought relief to some. Uh, John Crowder Stevens, a witness for the defense, uh, reported to the court that he'd lost his eyes, uh, his sight, sorry, as a result of brain fever as a child, um, and that he'd been taken by his parents to a number of eminent physicians across the country. He'd been given up for blind by ophthalmologists in London and Norwich, and yet he'd had great success with the Indian Oculus. Um, As he explains here, my my head is much better. I, I can see objects more clearly and distinctly. I used to have aches, and he was planning on continuing to use the Oculus. Um, Walter Butler was so pleased that the oculist had cured his 10-year-old son that he traveled from Wellingborough to the Old Bailey in order to be able to post bail for them. Um, The uh, oculists appear to have been the most successful, though, when they were employing the technique of couching. Um, Here we see William Russell describing his successful operation after having been turned away from Moorfields. It was like a transformation scene to me. Um, I had not seen daylight in so long. I could see all the room. I could not see like that before. I can see you now. I can see you plainly. Um, As a modern viewer on the subject, it's it's difficult not to cringe at the descriptions of surgery um, done without any painkillers or antiseptics. Um, But I think it's important not to follow this um, Victorian line of thinking which divides the scientific from the quack, the Western from the Indian in a very black and white sense, particularly in this period. Um, What the trial demonstrates uh, so beautifully is the gray area, uh, which continued to exist within professional ophthalmology um, and ongoing disagreements over correct procedures and diagnostic techniques. But crucially, it brings the voice of the patient into the debate. Um, As we can see from some of these descriptions, the public is clearly still very interested in using these fashionable oculists, um, even preferentially over the hospitals. Um, celebrated eye surgeon uh, Sir Astley Paskin Cooper reportedly once said of eye surgery and eye anatomy, I have made mistakes myself. In learning the anatomy of the eye, I dare say I have spoiled a hatful. Uh, so while late Victorian ophthalmologists in their many textbooks on eye surgery waxed lyrical about the skill of their profession, their distinguishedness from uh, empirics, it appears that the patient population might have been having a slightly different experience. 
um, that the patients of the trial, both for the defense and the prosecution, had consulted with British ophthalmologists um, before seeking help from the Oculus um, is clear in the trial transcripts. The institutions mentioned number among the most reputable eye hospitals of the day, uh, including St. Thomas's, Royal Westminster, Charing Cross, and of course, Moorfields. Uh, Thomas Whitehouse had sought the help of the Oculus after a botched treatment um, at the Nottingham Infirmary, um, which he describes here. I was recommended to go to the infirmary. Um, the doctor examined me and said I'd got double cataract. A fortnight afterwards, he operated and said I should see as ever I did in my life. But the effect of that operation was I've never seen with that eye again. I was told I should go blind, and there was not a doctor in the world that could save my sight, except the uh, Indian Oculus, apparently. So even at the dawn of the 20th century, eye surgery remained very dangerous by today's standards. Edward Nettleship, a specialist surgeon called at the trial, suggested that about 5% of eyes were still lost in cataract operations. Um, and George Anderson Critchett, another famous ophthalmologist, also at the trial, hazarded the statistic was probably more like 10% eye loss. And while this was no doubt a great improvement on the state of affairs earlier in the century, it's likely that one in 10 patients at a major London Eye Hospital would have been left blinded or dissatisfied by their care. Um, in 1872, William Wadd commented that, like drowning men, when honest practitioners give no hope, quacks seem to catch um, every twig. You know, it's, it's an observation which does seem quite apt, considering the trial. However, I think we need to be very cautious about thinking of the Oculus as quacks, um, particularly as their techniques do seem to have been effective. Now, the other question is, are they uh, using a technique which is justifiable uh, in the courtroom? So this is George Anderson Critchett speaking at the trial. He said, I should say that couching has been practically abandoned for 50 years. There have been instances since, but it appears in books as a relic of the past. Um, it was not a common operation even 50 years ago. So it's clear that the uh, specialists in the courtroom were aware of the technique that the Oculus were using, even though they determined um, that it was not the appropriate one. And whether or not this is true is something I'll return to in a minute. Just quickly, I think it's interesting to mention, if we're wondering about why people might have chosen the Indian Oculus, aside from being dis disappointed in their medical care, it's important to remember a bit more about the context of London in the late 19th century. It would have been very typical to see images like these selling goods um, from medicines like toothpaste, um, products for your skin, and importantly, tea across the city. And I certainly think there is an element of sort of Orientalism, of people's interest in the Orient and the Empire, and why they might have been attracted to try something like Indian medicine. It's something that the Oculus certainly seem to have been aware of um, as they had their handbills distributed by a man wearing a similar costume to these. Um, so drawing on this sort of myth of the mystic East is uh, something that I think we certainly should keep in mind. Uh, now at the trial's conclusion, the defense was unable to prove that the Oculus had acted fraudulently. Their tools, their medicines, and their techniques may not have been the most up-to-date or even the safest, um, but the Oculus were clearly carrying out what they believed to be efficacious operations. Indeed, in certain cases, they were able to effect a cure, or at least they hadn't made matters any worse. Um, but if the Oculus were more or less agreed to have been remiss in their use of instruments, less clear was the status of their operation. Um, if its use by unqualified Oculus was roundly condemned, was the procedure of couching in itself problematic, especially in the hands of a professional surgeon? Um, now, at the trial, Critchett is certainly suggesting no, but when we look to the medical press more broadly, the case is a bit more confused. In the years after the Oculus trial, British ophthalmologists actually held a cautious optimism about the usefulness of the couching technique. 
1901, prominent ophthalmic surgeon um, from Bart's Hospital, Henry Power, published an article called A Plea for the Occasional Use of Couching, which argued that with advances in antiseptics, the use of chloroform, and new fixing forceps, the operation might again be used with success, um, particularly in cases such as, this is, these are his words, um, lunatics, imbeciles, and idiots, um, who could not sustain the follow-up operations which were necessary with the extraction procedure. This view was echoed by other famous surgeons like Edward Treacher Collins and W.T. Spicer, um, who at the Ophthalmological Society in 1906 suggested it was still a useful technique that actually they used um, frequently in their hospital practice and had never seen um, anything bad come of it. But while ophthalmologists at home were cautiously interested in reintroducing the method, Anglo-Indian surgeons, um, that is British surgeons working in India, were amongst its most ardent critics. Uh, attempting to repair eyes that had been damaged, um, that had been couched previously by the suttias, formed a considerable part of the practice um, of these surgeons. Um, here, Drake Brockman, who donated that set, is talking about um, the procedure. The whole thing from beginning to end is one of charlatanism and deceit of the worst description. Um, obviously, considering the year, he's reflecting as well on, on the court case trial. Um, and Henry Smith, who I'm going to introduce in a moment, once ruefully wrote, lens couching at the present time is not an operation that should be practiced outside the rank of charlatans. And there he was actually responding to Powers' article. So I am a surgeon, G.H. Fink observed, that the subject of the eye seemed to hold a particular fascination for surgeons in India who had greater advantages and opportunities than their confrères in the sister service, that is, those working at home in Britain. Like most medical and surgical specialties, innovation has always been based on the availability of clinical material, that is, patients. And in India, where malnutrition and exposure to intense UV light made cataract more prevalent, surgeons were provided, were provided with a large patient pool for training and experimentation. While specialist hospitals like Moorfields typically undertook between two to 300 cataract operations annually, Indian government hospitals like the Madras Eye Infirmary were carrying out 1,000 cataract extractions a year uh, around the turn of the century. Uh, and Henry Smith himself claimed to have performed over 50,000 cataract operations personally over his Indian career. And whether that statistic is a little bit inflated is the subject of debate. Certainly a lot of his uh, colleagues were suspicious of that number. Um, but at any rate, this large patient pool facilitated Anglo-Indian surgeons, surgeons in trying all things, in Robert Elliott's words, um, when it came to the various techniques of cataract extraction. Eyes and eye surgery should have been, for many Indian practitioners, the basis of a globally recognized expertise. And yet here, um, the excellently named Herbert Herbert um, says, how is it that in cataract extraction, every step and every variation in the operation has been worked out in Europe and in America without reference to practice and opinion in this country, that is India, where individual surgeons perform four to five times the number of operations by the busiest and most renowned men elsewhere. How is it that among recognized authorities on cataract, no Indian name finds a place? Uh, so one surgeon, Henry Jalinder Smith, actually attempted to change this and suggested his own unique operation. Um, now, Henry Smith was born in 1859 in County Tyrone in Ireland, and he joined the Indian Medical Service in 1890. In his obituary published by the British Journal of Ophthalmology, he's remembered as a large man with a massive head and not very approachable to his juniors. 
Although the Indian um, oculists were derided in court for their unsanitary habit of smoking, um, Smith was famously very well known uh, for smoking a cheroot or a small cigar um, during every one of his operations. Um, and we see him here. Apologies for the quality of the photo. Um, he's actually smoking one of his little cigars while he examines this patient. Uh, he once told a colleague that if he had to put down his cheroot, it was a bad operation, and if it went out, then it was a damned bad operation. So quite, quite a character. And that definitely comes through in his, um, in his new technique as he presented it to the medical press. In July 1900, Smith uh, published in the Indian Medical Gazette a modification of the uh, cataract extraction, which he styled as the Smith or Indian operation. He introduced his method as an operation which can be shown to have no serious drawback, and it's evident that it has many advantages over the ordinary method. Uh, so supposedly, after arriving in Jalunder, Smith decided to use his own judgment as if the schools of ophthalmology did not exist. Uh, and he described his, his procedure and how he came, uh, came about it in this very heroic language. Um, I was working single-handed and alone, untrammeled and unhelped by the teachings of anyone, fully aware that I had to stand alone against the ophthalmic world. Um, and as he reported to people, as he was describing the operation, if you were going to carry out the Smith operation correctly, a surgeon needed a good eye and they needed nerve, most importantly. So in simple terms, the Smith operation consists of removing the lens complete in its capsule, um, pushed free from the cornea with a lens hook. So unlike a, a similar method that was pioneered in Calcutta by Charles McNamara uh, a few decades previously, um, which had used a scoop to remove the lens and capsule, Smith used pressure to express the lens whole. And for this reason, the Smith or Indian procedure is often referred to as uh, intracapsular extraction. Um, the ability to remove the delicate lens without having to break it up um, through a small incision in the cornea required careful movements and, importantly, a competent assistant to immobilize the eye, uh, which is what this image is showing. Uh, the ability... Uh, oh, sorry, as, as Smith was explaining it, um, it's, as, it's as simple as the ordinary operation, he says, in experienced hands, and it has the great advantage of leaving nothing behind to become opaque and no foreign matter to set up iritis. Um, as the capsule had re removed entirely, patients no longer needed to come back after their operation to have their after cataract, as it was called, needled um, or breaking up in the months following the operation, which, is, uh, which was the ordinary state of affairs at this time. But Smith's confrontational writing style and challenging operation won both firm adherence and vocal enemies. Uh, without a doubt, his technique is colored by his bombastic claims, uh, his disdain for the English profession, and his seeming refusal to accept any critiques of his work. Um, the main issue with the operation was the high proportion of failures um, experienced by surgeons who attempted it, mainly from the leaking of the vitreous humor of the eye. Uh, missionary surgeon James McPhail reported uh, in the Medical Gazette that despite originally hopeful results, complications resulted in 20 out of 100 cases, including prolapse of the iris, vitreous escape, and superation of the eye, which resulted in blindness. Um, the operation, in his word, was playing with high stakes. Uh, Robert Elliott informed the Ophthalmological Society in London that while he had made many attempts at the operation, he found vitreous loss in 200 cases. Um, but Smith was very much unperturbed uh, by these figures, and he says statistics are at best a poor substitute for what could actually be seen, and that, of course, is his great success at Jalunder. Now, his main response to his detractors is that they were just simply doing it wrong. Um, they were unskilled or they had misunderstood the movements that were necessary to uh, perform the operation. 
Um, in his own estimation, Smith believed that his procedure was the most highly technical operation in the whole of surgery. Um, he wrote of his fellow IMS surgeon, F.P. Maynard, he evidently went about this highly technical operation as a man would go about shoeing horses from a mere description in a veterinary book. Um, yet, for the most part, Smith's new operation could only ever be communicated by description. The Indian surgeons worked days or even weeks apart from each other, and of course, British surgeons were across an entire sea. Um, but seemingly, the only solution to this problem was for an interested surgeon to take the trip to Jalinder to see it done themselves. Um, so while Smith had many critics, those who made the trip typically became his ardent disciples. And here uh, McKechnie writes, it's satisfactory to note that the members of the IMS and others are now in increasing numbers making pilgrimages to Jalinder to see Major Smith and his intercapsular operation. It can be safely asserted that no one from merely reading the description so far could do the operation as it should be done. Yeah, so in order to overcome this, this barrier that people were finding, um, Smith enlisted the help of an American surgeon, and they produced a visual guide to the operation in 1910. Um, I mean, realistically, despite the fact that it's illustrated, Smith is still relying ultimately on static images and textual descriptions. Um, and when you read it, it does reveal the difficulty in communicating the finesse of these movements. Um, so this image here is illustrating the, the hand position necessary for gripping the instrument, making the initial incision. The, the knife snip, uh, Smith instructs should be held like a pen, but more lightly, as this figure is attempting to show. Now, the hand here is presumably Smith's himself, um, taken from life during the operation at Jalinder. Um, and so this, this line sketch is really an attempt to metaphorically move the reader to the bedside of one of Smith's patients, and in so doing, bridge the gap in that communication difficulty. So while surgeons in India were clearly at least willing to try Smith's operation, it appears the same interest could not be found amongst Smith's confrères in Britain. Uh, Herbert openly mocked Smith in the pages of the Indian Medical Gazette for what he called the cold reception of his technique in England. Uh, in 1901, uh, Edward Treacher Collins wrote uh, in The Practitioner that intercapsular extraction was essentially an Indian operation. It's never found much favor in Europe. Uh, Herbert Easton of Guy's Hospital uh, reported to the readers of The Lancet that after many discussions of the technique uh, with his colleagues, all agreed they would never submit their own eyes to the Indian operation. Uh, an editorial in the BMJ declared that nothing could be better than the results uh, produced by Smith, but it would be a long time before British surgeons would be persuaded to adopt this operation, which, though it gives such incomparable results in Major Smith's hands, most people still regard as extremely dangerous. Um, there's, actually, there's little evidence that any of these critics actually tried Smith's operation, uh, or at least if they had, they didn't publish on it, and they're largely relying on what the Indian surgeons are saying, except for one very small trial carried out in Glasgow um, by a Dr. Lewis Macmillan on four cases in 1906. And he concluded that actually good results might be got from it, um, but he supposed the ordinary method was probably safer in most cases. And which brings us to an interesting question about the Smith procedure. And in many different ways, difficulties are presented almost as the fact that you needed Smith's hands to be able to do the operation in the way that Smith intended. But running as subtext through all of the surgeon's discussions, there's this question that perhaps it's actually the patient that is profoundly different. There was a widespread belief that Indian eyes could stand up to the operation in a way that European eyes um, never could. Uh, these are a few quotes from some discussions on the subject. Um, Maynard, an IMS surgeon, suggests um, that the globe itself is very different, um, not nearly so constant in size as the European. 
Um, the British Medical Journal says, um, in terms of Smith's operation, there must be something specially tolerant in the eyes of the natives to carry it out. So here it's not so much Smith's technique, but the patients themselves. Um, and here another comment from uh, one of Smith's colleagues, we would never allow European eyes to be subjected to the violence which these Indian eyes um, can stand. So this is not to say that Indian practitioners, of course, were not thinking about what was best for their patients. Um, indeed, concerns over vitreous loss was evident in the writings of British surgeons in India. However, there simply was a willingness to experiment on Indian eyes that was deemed not appropriate or unacceptable in European patients. Uh, indeed, many historians of medicine have observed that the British Empire has often served as a laboratory, a place for trialing uh, new techniques before they were re-imported and trialed on British eyes. But interestingly, cataract pouching seems to travel quite easily um, from London to uh, Britain by the Indian oculists, and yet Smith's technique never makes uh, this leap to domestic practice, whether as a result of uh, these sort of racial ideas or perhaps simply because of the difficulties in communicating surgical techniques. Um, but debate over the best way to remove a cataract, whether in or out of its capsule, continued into the 1940s when it was largely superseded by the introduction of the intraoxular lens by Sir Harold Ridley. But it seems appropriate to return now, by way of conclusion, to Robert Elliott and his Indian eyes at the Royal College of Surgeons. Elliott had been a key player in the debate over Smith's Indian operation and was a vocal critic of Smith's technique. Um, where Smith attempted to break away from the schools of ophthalmology, Elliot prided himself on visiting the European masters, as he called them, and used his connections with European expertise frequently in his criticisms. In the pages of the Indian Medical Gazette, Elliot worried that Smith's disdain for the expertise of British surgeons would affect the standing of Anglo-Indian ones who typically returned home at the end of their service. While Henry Smith might have begrudged the reluctant attitude towards his operation, Elliot found that the reception at home of his Indian expertise was too flattering, embarrassingly so at times, he says here. Roughly a contemporary of Smith's, Elliot had um, his own successful Indian career. In 1892, at the age of 28, he was sent to the Northwest Frontier with the Indian Medical Service, and by 40 had been elected professor of ophthalmology at the Madras General Hospital. In 1915, he retired and settled here in London's Cavendish Square. Um, and perhaps because of his identification with the domestic rather than the Indian profession, Elliot continued his meteoric rise at home in London. Much of his professional um, success, uh, to bring things a bit full circle, was due to his expert knowledge of the couching operation, which had fascinated and repulsed British surgeons since the 1890s. Now, Elliot capitalized on his interest uh, in, 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 on his Indian experience, rather, by bringing something, quite literally, of his Indian patients with him to the metropolis. And most famously, of course, Elliot imported 54 eyeballs removed from his patients at the Madras Ophthalmic Hospital, who'd previously been couched for cataract. Accompanied by um, illustrations and clinical notes, um, this collection of Indian eyes was the centerpiece of Elliot's Hunterian lecture. And in likely what was quite a calculated move in order to maintain connections with the college, he then, of course, donated them to the museum. These mobile body parts were used by Elliot in a, as a form of knowledge currency, we might say, a physical manifestation of his Indian experience, which he could share with future students of the college. His specialist knowledge of India and the needs of patients in the empire led Elliot to be invited to join the School of Tropical Medicine um, as a lecturer in 1917. Um, under his leadership, Elliot arguably founded the specialist field, which he dubbed tropical ophthalmology. Um, 
particularly in the form of his 1921 uh, monograph, which featured a number of images illustrating the sorts of diseases that affected the eyes in the British Empire, but also, of course, many of the Hunterian couched eyes. So what I've really tried to do today um, is to suggest that India and its patients and its practitioners played an important role in the development of 19th century ophthalmology. Personally, I don't, I don't think it's possible to look at the development of surgical practice in this period um, and not think about the wider world and the conversations which are being had across imperial spaces. Questions about what procedures, the best tools, were still very much a subject of debate, far from the professionalized, codified view we might have of the late Victorians. Practitioners, patients, and ideas who were either from or working in other parts of the world were integral to the foundation of modern ophthalmology, which I think today really retains the sense of internationalism in its expertise. Moorfields and Madras, or as I might call it more accurately, the Government Ophthalmic Institute in Chennai, remain centers of best practice and innovation coming out of a long history of conversation and collaboration, which continues today. Thank you very much. Time for questions? If, yes, we do. If anyone wants to ask, I'll try. <laughs> anyone has any questions about the bring in microphone? It's totally clear. <laughs> nope. Right then. Uh, we're not having questions. Uh, well, um, in that case, I'd like to uh, thank Kristen very much uh, for coming in today to talk about her subject. Um, perhaps if anyone does have a question they don't want to ask in front of everyone else, I'm sure she'll remain here for the next uh, five or ten minutes just packing up. So, so do please uh, pop over and say hello. Um, this, as I said, is the first of three lectures we have in the run-up to the closure of the Hunterian Museum in preparation for the refurbishment of the whole college building, which will take us through to around summer 2020. Uh, our next lecture will be on the 21st of March and will be about the charity, the British Kidney Patients Association, where an individual who's both uh, working for the charity and is themselves a former uh, kidney, uh, uh, kidney transplant patient uh, will be able to talk about uh, the charity and their personal experiences related to the charity. And on the 25th of April, uh, we have a lecture called Transplant Before Transplant. We'll be looking at some of the very early techniques of transplant uh, from the 18th century and beyond. So please do keep an eye out in our brochures and online for more information about these and other events related to our current exhibition, Transplant and Life. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>